Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Banner Podcast, where birders talk birding. We've probably all watched wildlife shows, either as TV specials or as scenes from historical movies or on YouTube. Have you ever thought about what it takes to actually be on site and shoot the film that goes into making these movies? Talk about patience, tenacity, endurance. Wow. My guest on this episode is Matt Aberhard. Matt says that part of what it takes is, in his words, being bloody-minded, which for we non-Brits roughly translates to extremely stubborn. Here's a brief teaser from the episode that'll give you some perspective. In wildlife film, you tend to get typecast and and actually, unfortunately, in very many ways, because jungle shoots really are the hardest shoots. I've got kind of like a reputation of being a crazy nutter who can carry kit through, you know, swamp forests. Matt is an acclaimed videographer and movie maker who's been places and not just seen things most of us can only imagine, but has made movies in and about those places. Well, really, we can do more than dream about them. We can see them through these videos. After hard work and hustle that put Matt in position for success in his filmmaking career, he got his big break when he worked with an assist, as an assistant to Hugo Van Lawick, working in Africa filming large mammals, especially primates. He filmed much of the spectacular final parts of the movie Jane, about Jane Goodall and her famous work with the Highland Gorillas. Matt has spent much of his career and become highly acclaimed for his photography in some of the most remote and spectacularly beautiful places on the earth. But Matt recognizes that these are, that in his words, these places are islands in a sea of humanity. He's now working on a project to show birds in America as indicators of the changes happening in our environment. He's a committed conservationist and is taking his career on a different path to try to make a difference. His story, I think, is both interesting and worth hearing. I hope you enjoy hearing Matt Aberhard on the Bird Banner Podcast, episode number 132. Help me welcome Matt. Matt, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm very well today um, and very pleased to be talking to you today. Nice. Are you uh, drying out great. from your work in the marsh? Yes, I've been um, slaving away, um, trying to film salt marsh sparrows in, in very wet marshes in Connecticut, uh, breathing in uh, midges and working all hours at night. Uh, it's, been, it's, been a, it's been a ride, let's put it that way. They're quite tricky birds. They are. I, uh, I have some experience with those at the Scarborough Marsh in Maine. Uh, I, I grew up in Maine and visit most every summer, and it's one of my favorite places to go. And one of the reasons is I can see Nelsons and Saltmarsh Sparrows both singing almost, you know, in the same marsh, right? almost beside each other. So it's really fun. Well, that's that's pretty cool. I mean, I would confess I, I haven't seen Nelson Sparrow, um, which is kind of crazy because I live, you know, three hours away from the main coast in Vermont. Uh, but just haven't been there to take that one off. Anyway, the salt marsh sparrow is a special, special little creature and very elusive, which is perhaps why I like it. Um, but it's certainly a challenging bird to film. Is it? Is it part of, you're doing a project, uh, the Birds of America or Birds of America about dwindling environments. And at least that was my take from your website. Uh, salt marsh environments are, you know, among the most imperiled in our country. Is that sort of what uh, brought you to this or? Yeah, we, well, I mean, the Birds of America is sort of my attempt to escape from the clutches of commercial wildlife TV, really. And um, I'm a bird, I've always been interested in birds. They're the things that really make me tick, the, the creatures that really make me tick. 
Uh, and obviously, I can't do a film on the birds of America in their entirety. So I had to pick uh, several species that represent, um, you know, American landscapes, really. And uh, the saltmarsh sparrow is a bird that is found on the coasts. It is um, a bird that was actually painted quite well by Audubon, um, which is an interesting aside. But, you know, if you're going to pick a bird that's threatened in America, then the saltmarsh sparrow is, is actually one of the ones that, that people are worried about. Um, it is on a trajectory for extinction, um, various, you know, predictions there, but 2050 is, a, is a, an off-quoted um, time frame for this because it's a bird that's squeezed out of its habitat by ever-rising sea levels um, and human development on the other side, of course. So it's running out of habitat and as such, it's one of a succession of birds on the East Coast that um, are experiencing very similar problems. We actually were very interested in filming black rail initially um, Good luck with that. <laughs> clearly, that that is an added level of difficulty um, on saltmarsh sparrow um, because of its habitat and the fact that it actually lives under vegetation. But but black rail is is you know on its way out. I mean, it's it, there, there aren't any, um, so that really compounds the problem. Saltmarsh sparrow is the next species along in this sort of projected extinction succession, really. Um, uh, and um, yeah, you can still film the nesting, but how long they're going to be there on, on eastern salt marshes is, 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 is really a matter for debate. But, but Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Salt marshes, uh, you know, for hundreds of years have been threatened by, you know, gosh, this beautiful, right? We just fill in that marsh. We could make a condo there, you know, sort of thing. Uh, or shopping center or something like that. Yeah. And, uh, and now rising sea levels uh, are, you know, what's left are, you know, probably going to be underwater. You know, I, I haven't thought about that, but maybe some other areas will become salt marsh if it happens gradually enough, areas that are above ground now. I don't know how that will work. But but, well, I think, I think that's, uh, that's, that's something that, you know, we have to consider. I mean, you know, millions of Americans will, will be forced to relocate to more inland areas. And, and that's the essential problem for the salt marsh sparrows. Marshes can't go anywhere. Um, so they're, they're squeezed. They, they, they can't respond and build in new places because human development prevents that from happening. So right. it's, it's a double whammy, if you like. And uh, of course, the interest for me with salt marsh sparrow goes beyond the birds themselves because clearly they're, they're, they are a canary in the mind for us. Uh, what happens to the salt marsh sparrow is happening to us. Sea level rise is happening now. That's what people don't understand. Yeah, the, the, the sparrow is just really uh, an example of of a sequence that can be filmed that shows this because two centimeters difference in in tide height a peak tide height is literally the difference of sort of two inches perhaps two inches is literally the difference between life and death of a, of a sparrow brood in the nest and uh, at the minute they, they they just can't squeeze in broods between high tide cycles that's it's just their big problem yeah very interesting uh, so uh Matt, you uh, have been making videos for, gosh, a long time. And I read uh, on, I think, an interview in the, the Vermont Public Radio interview uh, about your start in Africa. Tell me about that. That's kind of a crazy story. 
Well, it is kind of a crazy story, I suppose. I, I go from filming lions and leopards and elephants uh, in, in Serengeti at the beginning of my career to filming saltmarsh barrows on the marshes of Connecticut in the latter stages of it. Uh, but um, in 1993, I was offered an opportunity to work with this guy, Hugo Van Lauwek, who was uh, quietly famous in wildlife filmmaking. Um, he was the first husband of Jane Goodall, and he lived and worked in Serengeti for many years. And he was a very generous individual, a fantastic photographer. Um, he really liked to mentor young people and raise them, you know, in his style of photography, if you like. So I got a lot of input very early from, from Hugo. I worked with him for a year in the same car, positioning him, talking about light, figuring out the best ways to get the best images. And then after that year's apprenticeship, um, he, he basically gave me a car and a driver and said, go on, Matt, go off and do your own thing. So we had unrivaled access to Serengeti. It, it really was quite extraordinary what we did. Um, and of course, you can't do the things that we used to do now. Um, I used to pack up a Land Rover with, you know, a week's worth of supplies and just go and follow a wildebeest and roof tent with them. Um, and birdwatch in between, of course. Uh, I could only start birding in Serengeti when, when I left Hugo's direct supervision, though, I would say. He wasn't interested in larks or, you know, occasionally Egyptian geese because there were characters who, who would film Egyptian geese, but, but I, I basically had to turn a blind eye to all the songbirds in my first year because it was too frustrating. Not only did I have Hugo telling me, no, come on, we got to follow the cheetah, um, but but the guidebook at the time, the Arlott um, um, Birds of East Africa um, book wasn't really adequate to be able to uh, separate whitetail, you know, and singing bush larks, so. so. I can imagine. Yeah. Know, for someone who's uh, focusing on big mammals, uh, yeah, little yeah. birds have to be a little bit uh, more Yeah, for, forget the Karamoja apolis, forget it. Just move on, move on, move on. Um, sure. follow that elephant through the through the whistling thorn yeah no it's fantastic you've spent a lot of time in africa it sounds like you've just traveled extensively with your work i mean been to a lot of really cool places what are some of the others like super neat places you've been uh, i mean so much i mean you know we are so privileged in wildlife film at the, at the top end we we get to you know experience the planet like very few people in in history and we get delivered to incredible locations all the time. I mean, of course, they're incredible locations that are actually islands in a sea of humanity, um, which is the downside to, to the work these days. Um, but all the same, I mean, it's a life of, of privilege that, that would cost millions, actually, if, if, if I was to um, try to fund these things myself. And, you know, Africa, Lake Natron in Tanzania is one of my favorite places. Um, borders Serengeti, huge flocks of flamingos breed there. Um, that is always going to be a place that's close to my heart. But um, other places that are particularly amazing for birds, uh, I've just spent some time in Sumatra where um, helmeted hornbill um, still eludes me. Um, but but that's a fantastic bird to hear in a forest and hear it flying overhead, even if you can't get a glimpse of it. Um, 
Cape Crozier in Antarctica comes to mind as being just absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, huge colonies of uh, penguins, Adelie penguins, over 500,000 birds there. Um, and then relatively recently, thinking about, you know, the places that really have inspired me, uh, Arfak Mountains in Papua, just mind-blowing, um, filming Birds of Paradise for for example, Netflix Dances with the Birds film. Um, there is no bird in the world that's as cool as a black sticklebill. I, I, I really do believe that. Um, a crazy elongated teardrop display that they make from... Um, Those uh, were the ones that... I watched, that, I watched uh, a little of that video uh, last night. I think it, it's just insane. It is uh, insane. And um, and it's and it's brilliant when you're in these forests. You can hear um, log falls all the time, so you know that you're in a proper place that hasn't really been disturbed. And although sickle bills are thin on the ground, man, they do shout, so you hear them. I mean, they have this incredible but but not call that just rings out everywhere. And, um, extraordinarily large as well. I think that 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 was one of the take homes from that that shoot. Physically large, you know, crow-sized birds. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. So mind-blowingly lucky, really. On on some of the videos, this is a person who knows nothing about taking videos, uh, really not much about photography. That some of the videos show these fabulous overhead views, you know, looking down on mountaintops. Are those done with a drone or from an airplane, or how do you do those? Yeah, well, drones have obviously revolutionized a lot of landscape photography um, in wildlife film. And, um, you know, if you were just to take forests, for example, it's actually very difficult to get good landscapes of forests, mm -hmm. uh, in fact, from the ground, you know. And, and sure. that actually probably what you're looking for in that scenario, if you're forced to um, really search for a shot, is, is a gap from a road or something that gives you that overview. Uh, but uh, no, drones are... are part and parcel of every kit that goes out you know in the field these days because they are if you like uh, just a, a massive massive jib arm that can extend 400 foot up in the air or exactly. if, you're, if you're a bit risky uh, riskier uh, or if you're a bit uh, more adventurous even higher uh, you know they 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 are um superb machines and and actually have relatively little impact although there are birds that really don't like them too so you have to be careful and and obviously for example filming flamingos at lake nature um which really was aided enormously through drone photography uh, you can get very close to, to flamingos with a drone if you drop them in slowly but if you fly a drone like a predator of course everything's going to take off in front of you sure and, and then other birds like gannets are actually quite curious of drones, so so they they can you can risk them and risk your machinery if you uh, sure. fly without due care there. Uh, so, <laughs> I bet. I bet. Uh, <laughs> you, don't, you don't want a collection of gannets, you know, attacking no. drones. No. Yeah. Bad for the drone, bad for the gannet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where did you uh, did you see gannets in uh, Newfoundland, or where did you go for that? Yes, uh, very lucky. Um, I did a, a shoot uh, jointly with Cornell up at Cape Crozier, uh, sorry, uh, up at Cape St. Mary's in um, Newfoundland um, and uh, had, a, had a brilliant time filming the, the colony there. It's a very southern colony, um, mm -hmm. but, you know, situated on a spectacular stack and you get these 
incredible views of birds just flying straight past you and you know, off into the void. And uh, no, it's a really special place, special part of the world. On my uh, wish list, I had uh, I had tried to go there this summer. It's kind of uh, kind of interesting. I I visit Maine every summer, and yeah. uh, to just to fly from Portland, Maine to St. John's is even Insane. before all these. It was crazy expensive. I just couldn't believe it. Uh, but during COVID, you know, Canada was not on everybody's uh, favored place list. They didn't oh. want you. And anyway, for whatever reason. Uh, this summer, Air Canada offered flights from Seattle to St. John's for like $450 or some really, really cheap, I mean, less yeah. than half or uh, probably a third what it would have cost to fly from Portland in past years. And I thought, great, this is my chance to go. But rent a car, not happening. Uh, zero. I talked to the people huh. of, uh, burning the rock, uh, the huh. guys up there, and there's just absolutely no rental cars in St. John's for the next two years. That is crazy. I, I so I would have had to take a, take a guided tour if I'd wanted to get to those places or figure somewhere. I, I don't know how I've gotten there. So decided against it. I, I did hear rumors that the, 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 the gannets in Newfoundland were hit a little bit this year, perhaps by bird flu. So um, you know, that, that, that's something to consider. Um, yeah, let's hope not. They're, they're quite resilient, so let's hope that they steer through that effectively. So you have been working on salt marsh sparrows now. Uh, it, I saw that uh, this is a project that uh, you're, you're starting, a, a, is it GoFundMe or crowdsourcing uh, funding for on your website? Do, do I remember correctly? Well, we, we still haven't really, really decided what we're going to do about that funding. I, I just okay. actually have to you know, start the ball rolling on the Birds of America project. One of my big bugbears is that uh, uh, wildlife filming business is controlled by perhaps uninvested Hollywood types. And they determine what stories are told. But I, I really do strongly believe that they're not the stories that, that are actually most interesting. And uh, Birds of America is, if you like, my perhaps my folly, but it's something that I just have to do. And I have to get back into um, making my own films um, that, that move, move us away from the planet Earth type show. Um, mm -hmm. As good as they are, they, they don't really address conservation um, in the ways that I think perhaps they should. Um, they are also not very personal films, and I believe that's a, an error because I think that you get to people um, by uh, appealing to, you know, their humanity. And the voice of God narration just doesn't do that. Um, it separates out nature. And I think that wildlife film, when it views nature, wild places as other, is doing it a great disservice. Because, of course, what we realize now, more and more people are realizing, is that we are part of this um, planetary system. Mm -hmm. and separating us from uh, wild, the wild is a big problem because it encourages people to think um, that what happens to nature is, is irrelevant and not important. And it is our life support system that we're talking about here. Sure. Um, othering nature is not the way to go. Um, and um, I think 
also the, the planet Earth type style film, really presents nature as untouched and unaltered. And in that sense, it is actually helping to, to tell a lie. Um, I mean, you know, half the truth is still a lie. And choosing to show nature devoid, shorn of context is just just not acceptable these days anymore. Birds of America will hopefully um, try to look at landscapes and uh, will show, you know, certain realities. Let's, let's put it that way, yeah, we can't, which, we which, can't, I, which I think are important. It's important to share. We can't just uh, see a fantasy film and, uh, and believe that that's uh, the way it'll be forever. Yeah, I agree with that. And, and, and yet, you know, they're not the sort of films that get commissioned by Hollywood. Um, yeah. that's, that's the brutal hard reality. And so, well, I've had a charm career, Ed, and I need to make a difference now. I need to use my skills to make a difference. And that means I've got to go out on a limb a bit. So, you know, building a community of interesting people, interested people is very important to me. And following my passion is very important. Well, well I'll be cheering you on for sure. Let's hope that you can uh, get this done and, and uh, you know, gather your thoughts and figure out exactly how you're going to do it. It's, it's, you know, it's a scary thing. You know, I mean, you're, you're getting away from your comfort zone. You know, you've been... Uh, a very successful, acclaimed, uh, hired gun, so to speak. The ringer who comes in and makes a fabulous film on a topic that's kind of assigned to you to some degree. And, and that's, you know, nothing wrong with that. But, uh, but you know, branching off on your own is, uh, is scary. If you, if you don't do it, you only have yourself to blame when at the end of the day when you haven't, haven't achieved what you want to achieve. And I believe that quality sells and passion sells and I'm just going to go for it because things arrange themselves, um, you know, when you have those fundamentals in place. You've got to believe that. I think you're right. Uh, Matt, I heard that you live in, in Vermont, uh, kind of off the grid. Uh, tell me about that. Yeah, no, it's a, a fantastic state. I've, I've, I love living there. I've got, you know, great land. Um, and we, um, uh, we have an off-grid house that um, supports my family. My two young daughters run around like feral, feral um, creatures in the summer without shoes um, in woods that are um, safe um, and full of um, adventure. And Vermont is um, it's a special part of the world with great, great bird life and good people. So um, living, living, living the life up there brings great satisfaction. And being independent brings great satisfaction. And being free of you know, fossil fuels as much as we can uh, is satisfying. Um, so yeah, my life is, is, is charmed really. And um, I'm very grateful for it. Of course I'm English, but you know, you could never do such a thing in um, UK um, with a wildlife filmmaker salary. Um, own you know, a large acreage of, of woodland and, and manage it as a private bird reserve. I mean, how can you go wrong? Yeah, sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, <laughs> winters sound a little cold. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got. I mean, do you go up to up, up to Vermont at all? I mean, obviously Maine is a is a key part of your 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 life. I I have spent 
very little time in Vermont. I, it, it's one of, yeah, I'm, a, I'm an e-birder. Uh, and uh, although I know I have birded in Vermont, uh, I skied in Vermont a little bit. I was stationed at West yeah. Point moons ago when I was in the Army. And isn't Sugarbush a ski area in Vermont? I believe so, but it's not a place that I'm very familiar, uh, I, familiar with. Uh, 35 years ago, the the, the local ski club took a trip to Sugarbush, and I went on that. And so I I was birding at the time. So I know I must have some birds in Vermont, but not many. <laughs> there, there. Um, we got a, a couple of little pieces of boreal habitat up uh, at Victory and, and Wedlock, and you know you can see spruce grouse and grey jays and um, boreal chickadees um, up in these places. So um, there's good birding there, and of course all the key warblers and theories and you know, mm -hmm. I mean, it is, it is fabulous. I, I cut my teeth birding when I was a kid in, in America because I had two years at junior high school. And um, I did get a, a pretty good bird list, but I never saw a Cape May warbler. So to see Cape May warblers passing through my property is, is fabulous. Very um, nice, yeah. And great, great, I, I call them great, great shrikes, but I mean, northern shrikes. Sure. Um, you know, get those in winter, goshawk, and, you know, so I'm, I'm never bored, put it that way. Yeah, so that's uh, birding in the boreal forest is pretty special. I, I, uh, just, I, I love Canada warblers myself. They're just one of my Oh, favorites. I do. I do too. And we've got a good population of them. So we've got, you know, a good cohort of young trees and um, good, yeah, large numbers of Canada warblers yeah. on my property. Black, black burnians too, I'm sure. Yeah, all of them. All yeah. of them. Whole suite. Yeah, nice. And... Uh, how long are you in, uh, how long are you doing the salt marsh sparrow project? It, just give me a feel for what a project that, that entails. It just seems like it must take a long time to get set, figure out where the nests are and get set up. And oh, goodness, I just can't imagine. The key, the key thing there, we've had great help. I mean, the shoot, the shoot that I'm running here is in partnership actually with Cornell, um, the Lab of Ornithology. It's like a shoot share. Um, so I've got um, Andy Johnston, who um, is a brilliant producer at Cornell working with me, and uh, uh, a woman called Harriet Bailey, who is our, our field assistant, basically. And we, we've, we've managed to find a good number of nests, or at least Harry has managed to find a good number of nests. And I think that's been the, uh, the key to filming salt marsh sparrows because clearly uh, they don't build in the same way. Individuals have different building styles, if you like, and you can't film, you know, most salt marsh sparrow nests. There's two enmeshed in the vegetation you can't see. But if you spend enough time, you can find these outliers, perhaps, um, nests that are actually open and we have almost like the perfect nest so that was the first first hurdle and then um, secondarily it's trying to figure out you know the key tide cycles because of course the story is about the drowning of the chicks and, and the flooding out of nests uh, on these high tide peaks um, so really we needed to find um, a nest that not only looked good but that had the potential to provide chicks uh, at, 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 this, at this crucial, you know, juncture where the tide sweeps in across the marsh and levels everything and brings it back to ground zero, um, really. So um, there's a lot of variables in play. And, and I think, um, you know, not just from a shot point of view, but a sequence point of view, there's this massive Venn diagram of all of these things that have to come together to provide you with those key moments. And uh, saltmarsh sparrow is probably one of the most complex 
birds or animal species that I've ever filmed uh, from this point of view. Are the nests impossible to find? But the, the nests have got to be at the right stage. Uh, you've got to have the right tides and you've got to have the right you know conditions at night to be able to film the tides it, it's a whole it's a, it's it's a it's a complex it's a complex thing um and the birds of course themselves are very cryptic um although i would say once you've actually got your location um you can get onto a nest site very easily um with very li limited you know um, chance of disturbing the adults so we had a blind positioned uh, within three feet of a sitting sparrow that, that wow. is sleep that is sleeping on the nest at night um, that's pretty impressive and actually she had a route into her nest that we traced as we were moving the blind in um, but once the blind was in position she used the blind as cover for her approach so she would run along the edge of it to get to her nest that's really quite great you know to be in that position wow Obviously, wow. a position that takes a, a while to get to. You can't just go there and just plunk, your, you know, your equipment in front of her and expect there to be any good that comes of that. But when you've taken your time and you've thought about things and you've you've approached things sympathetically, it's amazing what you can do. Look, you can get um, the result from that process of, of what my work is about. You know, for me on a personal level. Um, you know that I wouldn't say salt marshes are a very easy place to work. They're full of un they're full of uncomforting things, and they, they can be cold at night. And is it black fly season there now? Well, is it like the midges, the no see midges? I mean, clouds oh, yeah. and clouds of them just biting. It doesn't matter what deep you put on, you, and you can't wear a, a, a head net because, of course, you can't see anything through a head net. You can't film with a head net. Um, but literally breathing in these nut CMs and, and having them in your eyes and picking them out the next morning from your eyelids um, is, is it's uncomfortable. But I would say that filming is often uncomfortable and always rewarding if you do it well. <laughs> I just can't imagine. <laughs> I, I am not, not that patient a man, I have to say. I don't think I can pull it off. Well, I think I think wildlife filmmakers and people think we're patient. Uh, I don't think we're patient. I think we're bloody minded, if you can use that English expression. You know, we're just or, or stubborn, um, because really that's the only way to get shots. Sometimes and, uh, the full suite of shot, the full range of shots you need to tell a sequence, is is just by being dedicated, and and I think that really sorts out the men from the boys as they were. It sounds like yeah. it. Yeah. Just, it's, uh, it's mind blowing to me that anyone would do that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can, I can next. I mean, I do have to come back um, to Salt Marshes to get some pickup shots. So, you know, next year you should come along for a whole night oh, and my see what goodness. you think. You could do a live report. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll see. I don't know if I'm up for that. <laughs> now, if you wanted to invite me to like, come along when you go to the Serengeti for a live report, I'm yeah. up for that. <laughs> that that might be doable but not not until birds of america is completed and and yeah. the, this is going to be quite a process i think it sounds know, like it, it. i want i want to make sure you keep me informed i'll uh maybe every few months you can just send me an email and tell me what's happening i'll keep listening informed as to what's up that would be hey uh, 
I would love to do that. You know, I mean, let's let's stay in touch about it. Um, yeah. And you know, I, I want to share the process of Birds America with people, and uh, you know, because building an audience that proves that these films have value is is actually critical for me. Um, you know, I, I haven't up to now done anything on Instagram. I, I, to be honest with you, I've never needed to, but I do need people to you know get involved, and um, you know, I want to use the platform Birds of America bird save us to to you know do real good and to motivate people and i also want to you know mentor some young folk through it too uh, so have you done any projects that either are remotely similar to this assault marsh sparrow project in wildlife film you tend to get typecast and and actually unfortunately in very many ways because jungle shoots really are the hardest shoots i've got kind of like a reputation of being a crazy nutter who can carry kit through you know swamp forests and i tend to do or have done recently a lot of primate you know large apes or, or fascinating animals but it's not what turns me on the thing that turns me on are bird bird stories because that's my direct personal interest birds are my passion and filming birds is the same as anything else you know you have to just you know have a subject you have to film it as if it's part of a landscape um you know for me birds or any animals are, are expressions of healthy landscape so that that's like integral to the filmmaking process for me um but lighting um approach all of these things are worked out whatever subject that you 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 choose to film and so I think that the methodology is the same um, in its in the grand scheme of things. You apply yourself, you think carefully, you think about what you need to get as opposed to what would be nice to get, and and you you try to tick boxes. I mean, filmmaking is is about chipping away and gathering a collection of images that work to tell a story. Yeah. So. How did you uh, become a photographer? Did you, uh, you know, train formally in photography, or how did that come about? Uh, so I actually had quite a checkered, checkered academic career. I um, made some mistakes, ended up um, leaving university before I, I'd finished an ecology degree. Uh, it's quite a key juncture in my life, obviously, that really helped define what it was that I wanted to do, because once you have that in place, then anything's possible. And from that position, I said, no, I'm going to be a wildlife photographer. And I engineered a break with a wildlife film company, um, working my way up through as a, I took a runner's job, which is a gopher's job, basically. And then I became an assistant editor. And then I gradually became involved with, um, you know, filmmakers, like Hugo. I met Hugo through my first job at Partridge Films. And I engineered my own luck, I would say. You know, I was always the first person to get there um, at the offices in the morning, and I was always the last person to leave. And that gets noticed. And I got on very well with Hugo, which was a very important um, thing for him. Um, obviously, when you're working in remote camps, you've got to be personable, you've got to get on with your colleagues. Um, and, and Hugo offered me work. So there was my apprenticeship. Um, there was my training. I didn't need anything more than that. Uh, obviously, you have to have some sort of artistic sensibility. There's no good. If you don't have it, you don't have it. 
you're never going to get it. Um, you know, I'm good at finding images quickly and I'm good at seeing images. But when you're given guidance by someone who's done that for a whole of his life, things come, come into, into focus pretty quickly. And that's the career I was, I was given by Hugo. I owe the guy a lot. You know, he, he was a fantastic photographer and a wonderful, generous man. Sounds like a story uh, many successful people can tell of, a, of a, a, lo a lot of hard work, some degree of talent, a break here and there, and uh, just uh, not giving up. Yeah, you have a passion and you've got to drive it through. And, and if, you're, if you're good enough, you'll find a way. And, you know, I think that, you know, to survive with an artistic career, you, you do have to be good enough. Yeah, it's no, don't kid yourself if you don't have it. But, you know, follow, follow a dream is, is, is what America's about, right? I think you're right. Let's hope that uh, maybe some listener picks up on that who's young and, uh, and follows their dream. Well, you know, and, and if you have young listeners who, who want to be a part of, of what I do, then, you know, get them to dig into Birds of America. And, you know, there are things that we're planning that uh, will perhaps um, help with, with, you know, techniques in wildlife film. I mean, that's one of my great hopes of the project is that we find a way of doing that so that you know, the filming process um, is illuminated through elements of this project hopefully that will inspire people to get up and, and pick up a camera too because photography for me is is just a way of exploring and seeing and training an eye and, and taking note of what you have around you and of course you know you can take brilliant pictures of wildlife everywhere you are you don't have to go to Serengeti you don't have to go to Cape Crozier or, or Lake Natron yeah. you can you can find salt marsh sparrows in in the marshes of Connecticut and there's a brilliant story there um, you can find, you know, stories in your backyard if you if you look and if you observe. It sounds like uh, it sounds like you've thought this through. That's super exciting for 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 you. I can't wait to to see how this project comes out. Uh, uh, Matt, I want to uh, close with just a couple of things. You've made just I don't even know how many uh, uh, well acclaimed films. Can can you name like half a dozen of your favorite favorite projects that people ought to make sure they check out if they want to get a feel for what your work has been? Half a dozen. I, I tell you, just check out just check out our planet, the Jungle series. We talked about me and my jungle filming, and um, you know that's 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 where you see me working in a swamp forest in Sumatra, filming orangutans. Um, I think that's worth 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 watching. Um, it shows me as a as the tough guy, if you like. Um, we mentioned Dances with the Birds. That was a recent film um, that that's worth picking up on Netflix. It's a humorous, lightly humorous take on on Birds of Paradise behavior, but there's extraordinary footage there um, that that is well worth seeing. Their last sort of big series that I worked on was Perfect Planet. I did the opening episode to that, uh, the opening sequence, which was a return to Lake Natron. Um, that's worth that's worth thinking out because that really is is fantastic work that built a lot on on um, the film that I I put together for Disney called Crimson Wing, and I was quite pleased recently when um, I did some publicity for the film and uh, had a had a chat with David Attenborough online to assemble all um, journalists 
and David said it was one of the best wildlife sequences of all time. So why don't you why don't you check that one out? Um, yeah, For sure, it's a, it's a fabulous place. Um, Lake Natron is, I mean, you you get hundreds of thousands of birds breeding there at the right season. Uh, and most people don't see them at all because they nest out in the middle of this salt lake, which is only accessible with a hovercraft. Uh, but if you've got the hovercraft lined up, then you can get some really <laughs> special things. And and, and, and I, I've managed to do that on a couple of occasions. And um, so share, sharing that experience with people is just that, that, that's what makes it work for me. Very cool. Uh, Matt, uh, how, how can uh, people reach out to you? If somebody wanted to get a hold of you, what's the best way? Is it through your website? Yeah, I mean, I've got a personal website. Uh, that's info at mattaberhart.com. And then there's the Birds of America fil dot film website, uh, which might, may actually change. Um, I might change the URL to how birds save us, the Birds of America film, um, to, to differentiate it from other productions and other uh, books for example on the birds of america uh, but uh, either either way um you know you can get hold of me and i'll do my best to reply it might take me a little while um, but you know sign up and, and get involved and if you've got any questions if anyone's got any questions about filmmaking you know i'd be happy to answer them or help um, steer people in the right direction if that's what they want to do because i think you know, I'm so conscious of the fact that that's what Hugo did for me. Pay it uh, forward. Thanks for offering. That's a great, uh, great opportunity. Any, uh, any listeners who are interested, uh, I'll make sure I put those links in the podcast notes and on the blog post I've got associated with this. So, Matt, thank you so much for talking with me today. I wish you all the luck and uh, hope your insect repellent works well and that the, uh, <laughs> that the project goes nicely. I'll survive and it has to go nicely. So uh, yes, it's uh, an exciting time for me and it's been great to talk. It's a, thank you very much for your time. And uh, hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll be able to do this regularly in the next years. That would be nice. I'll stay in touch. Thanks, Matt. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Well, that wraps up the Burbainer podcast, episode number 132 with Matt Aberhard. Thanks for listening. Wow. Talking with Matt gives me a greater perspective and greater appreciation, really, for what it takes to produce the spectacular videos that he and others make. Previously, Matt has had not had much for a social media presence, but I think his new feed on Instagram, at Matt Aberhard, and the link is in the podcast notes, is going to be must-see content. I'm also a bit in awe that Matt's going to use his talent and time to create video that puts conservation front and center while still creating spectacularly beautiful and compelling content. After watching just a bit of his work, I have no doubt that he can make a movie that will help make a difference. Check the podcast notes as well as the blog on birdbanner.com for links to Matt's work and contact information. Until next time, thanks for listening. Good birding. Good day. <laughs>